Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays uh, here for the weekly update at JM in the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, thank you. Malcolm, um, it's really good to be with you again. Appreciate thank that. Being traveling. Yeah, so I, I mentioned on the air that you were traveling last week in, in you know, some pretty interesting places. I don't know if you're able to share any of that with us or not. Is this uh, one of those secret missions or something that you could uh, review for us on the air? Well, there are things that I can certainly review. Um, I mean, some of it I won't, but the, the uh, some very interesting things that I, I participated in. I was at the Aladdin Project, which was a very high-level gathering of leaders, international leaders, and it began as a project to introduce Holocaust education in the in schools in the Arab world. And King uh, Mohammed VI of Morocco was a big endorser of it, and uh, he invited me to this uh, to the conference um, where you had a lot of leaders from the Arab world and from other countries. It, I mean, the subject matter is much broader now on human rights and many other issues. Uh, there were some negative comments by people on, on, on Israel, just two, one a Palestinian and one an, a, a, an American Jewish journalist. Um, well, I should say journalist who claims it to be of Jewish origin. And um, But it's very interesting to see uh, the focus of people because of the follow-up. Uh, I was at a conference in Rabat uh, and spoken, got awarded the Jews in Africa conference where... Uh, people were brought together by uh, ASF and, and, and an organization that we um, helped from the very beginning of Moroccan young people who want to uh, reestablish and remember the Jewish heritage uh, in Morocco. Mm-hmm. And it's now become a major player in civil society. But they also, they had leaders from Africa, from all over, talking about the, the history of Jews in Africa, something people know very little about. But all over Africa today, there are movements and groups, some of them without any historical antecedent, some of them with very strong historical claims um, about their being um, part of Jewish history. Uh, Jews live in Africa, we believe, for 2,000 years after the Chorba Mayas Rishon, that after the first destruction of the first temple, Jews were scattered around the Mediterranean. When Jews came back from Babylonia, some went to to Africa, um, they say, and oh, many other historical occasions, and uh, the destruction of the second temple too, Jews you know, ended in places like Jerba, where you have had a continuous Jewish community in Tunisia, Morocco, they certainly claim people think that the Berbers may have been of Jewish origin, uh, a lot of this is still speculative, but I just think it's a fascinating thing that, that people wanted to be identified with the Jewish community as ministers from Cape Verde, from Tunisia, from many other countries uh, speaking about this um, this phenomenon. So it was very interesting. Look, the situation in, in a lot of uh, North Africa is very unstable, as it is everywhere else. The economic conditions, the war in Ukraine cutting off food supplies, the rise of prices are going to destabilize a lot of uh, the regimes if emergency measures aren't taken. Countries like Egypt, which depend on 70%, I think, of their wheat and stuff from Russia and Ukraine. 
this has a profound impact. On the fir- the, uh, yes. No, just on the first point, the human rights discussion, uh, Holocaust education implementation, etc. I mean, uh, some you know some people may cynically not think that this helps, uh, but I think I think sometimes we forget that if you know if incitement on the other side uh, ends up with people becoming you know violent against certain groups and certainly Jews, as we see uh, in certain parts of the world, uh, one has to assume that that dialogue and understanding between groups has to at least uh, you know um, uh, serve as a uh, as a positive element um, in, in other words when you're sitting there my the point I'm trying to make is it, it's not a waste of time a lot of people think that these discussions are, um, are are moot points frankly and and not helpful but I think as time goes by we see that that there is some you know s- some there are significant results from them actually it's a very important point because I don't believe in every dialogue, and there were people there that uh, were very hard to stomach, but the goal is to win over the other 80-90% of the people, right. which is possible, and you had people from keep people from Lebanon, from others, who turn out to be in quietly coming over and wanting to talk and being much more sympathetic and know about some of my moments and other things, and the... Um, uh, there are a lot of people who can be influenced positively, and when they see a yarmulke and, and a picture together with a yarmulke, along with all the world leaders and the pictures that went out, in fact, it was a tweet yesterday that came out of Lebanon, which says, this is what drives Hezbollah crazy, and it showed the, the Lebanese official with me, <laughs> I mean, just standing there, and the and somebody just snapped the picture, and I'm not supposed to do it without permission, but they did, but it 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 was meant to stick it to Hezbollah. Right. That and and the, I have seen repeatedly the good that can come out of these things. Although I admit that I'm a skeptic and I, I go to it with I hope open eyes. Uh, but I also see, I've seen the results over the years of our outreach. If you remember, 25, 30 years ago when I started the outreach to the Gulf, people were very critical and you know very uh, skeptical. I should say, and I remember you heard some of it, yep. um, and you see the results today. Now nobody thinks that it was crazy and and uh, and wrong, but the dialogue that was started then contributed directly to what the things that that followed. Yeah, it may drive the King of Jordan crazy, but uh, but it certainly <laughs> it, it certainly has yielded some positive results. That's for sure. And and there's more going on that people know. And and again, it's against the forces the Iranian force of Hezbollah Hamas and all of their backers and other forces, the Islamists, the ISIS uh, forces, who, if if no support is shown to this, the stable guys and to somebody like King Mohammed VI, who's done such amazing things, restoring 167 Jewish cemeteries at his cost, uh, restoring Jewish synagogues, in introducing uh, the education, the changing educational curriculum. Sisi did it in Italy, in, in Egypt, they in, in Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, they've all changed their textbooks. The Palestinian Authority changed their textbooks so they made them worse and more anti Semitic. <laughs> right. But not a joke, seriously. Yeah, I know. That, but but these others now when you have Holocaust days and and people could say, Well, the Holocaust is easy. The fact is that once you start breaking down some of the uh, people who were saying uh, it was widespread belief that Holocaust was exaggerated Holocaust denial, now you have Holocaust commemorations in all these countries. It begins to change the dialogue. It begins to change the atmosphere. It's going to take many years. You can't uproot decades of hatred, incitement, indoctrination uh, overnight. 
but the change is very clear. Uh, all right, let's get to what everyone's curious about, and uh, maybe this is a question I should ask uh, either Edith Silman or Nir Orbach, but uh, is there going to be an Israeli election on October the 25th? What could you tell us about the teetering Israeli government? It's teetering, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I think it's likely that we're going to, I don't know how long they can hang on. It wasn't all of their interest to sustain the government. But with the, the people peeling off one after another, and mostly from Yamina, from Bennett's own party, right. uh, that it, it's going to be hard to sustain. He, he is pressing them not to leave until, and not to bring the government down until at least Biden's visit, which will be in July. Um, they they want to at least have a, a viable government until that point. Uh, I don't know that that, that will hold. Obama is supposedly negotiating with Likud for a position of, on the list, and um, you know the others, the vultures will circle now uh, from outside and inside the government. So Bennett doesn't really have a firm hold, even on his own coalition, uh, to sustain. So we'll have to see. But each day, the government seems to get somewhat weaker, and um, you know Biden is supposedly to bring a plan to bring. Israel and Saudi Arabia closer together, and other Arab neighbors. They they, they uh, are planning a visit to to um, to meet with Abbas also in Ramallah and and uh, visit Saudi Arabia. Uh, the situation, of course, uh, the PA is also very unstable. Hamas has been uncovered in various plots over the last week to try and take the uh, over the West Bank, and of course, always are challenging uh, the PA. So the president's going to come into rather unstable situation, and obviously he's going to face a lot of criticism about his visit to Saudi Arabia because of his uh, comments about uh, K- uh, MBS and uh, others before, and calling pariahs, etc. Uh, I don't know whether he will negotiate the increased oil production, but I think that uh, Israel will figure centrally in, in his visit. Um, just procedurally, back to the Israeli election for a second. So that that vote of no confidence that's sort of scheduled for this coming Wednesday is that still how it's going to work? That if that vote goes the way people expect, then the government will officially um, lose its coalition and um, Lapid will become prime minister or at least caretaker prime minister, and then the new election will be the first Tuesday after the Chagim, which is the twenty fifth of October. Is that what we read earlier in the week? Is that still the accurate description? Still of how- on the table. Absolutely. But the uh, question of whether Lapid, uh, there will be various contestations about who takes over. But I think in the coalition agreement, it does give Lapid the the option to take over. Um, I don't know that he can sustain a government separate and apart. But the, uh, you know, the government, once the Knesset is dissolved, uh, the government is the most powerful government you can have because they, they don't have to consult. They can make decisions and take actions during the three months. Uh, I remember when Shamir took full advantage of it, and so did others, because they are able to make decisions and implement them. Without, what, taking it to a vote? No Knesset vote, nothing. Wow, interesting. Sort of like an executive order. Exactly. Very well. Um, and, And Saudi Arabia, did they ever consider uninviting the president or not accepting his desire to come like i get it that you know that he's made a decision to come despite his uh, objections to them in the past and public statements he's made about them in the past were, were, were they leaning toward being insulted and not welcoming the president of the united states 
they did refuse his phone calls a couple of weeks ago. But they're not telling him not to come. No, no, absolutely won't tell a person in the United States not to come. Uh, I'm sure that a lot of work was done before the announcement uh, about what the the nature of the visit would be and that it won't be just a a Khashoggi-focused visit and that the United States now needs Saudi Arabia for a variety of reasons, but even the inflation and threats of recession and the price of oil over $5, uh, the um, uh, issues in in the region, the breakdown of the talks with Iran, many issues right now, even though they're still trying to cover it up and and, uh, and not, I think, face the reality of what Iran has been up to and the some of the stuff that, that you know, we've seen, uh, the removing of the cameras and the challenges on the front. I'm sure we can talk about that. But I think for Saudis, uh, it will be very significant. And Saudi Arabia, even moving towards relations with Israel, in a more formal sense, short of full recognition or something of that kind, um, it will be significant because remember, it's the home of Mecca Medina. It still has its unique status right. and would certainly boost the, the efforts of the Abraham Accords. Uh, before we get to Iran, the um, it, I, I, you've, you've listed three places that uh, you are assuming or have confirmation or already has been reported in the news will be on the list of the president's itinerary, and that's Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the PA. Is, is it possible there'll be other places that he'll visit on that uh, journey? It's possible. Uh, I don't know how much, you know, how long he wants to uh, elongate the trip. Um, you know, uh, so... It's already scheduled it's for three, four days. It's very big So oh, that's a good point. These we know, the visits that I mentioned are the ones that I know have been confirmed. Right. There was there was talk and speculation about another trip and maybe one in, in June before, but uh, the timing of this uh, now is, is for July, and those are the main countries. Obviously, he's um, he will have encounters with others. The GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, is supposed to meet in Saudi Arabia, and he would meet then with the heads of the other Gulf countries as part of this. Um, I think he would probably want an opportunity to see the King of Jordan, which could take place right. in the PA, uh, and even CC. By the way, for those for those who've been in Israel for U.S. presidential visits, it's happened to me a couple of times, probably happened to you a thousand times. That's going to be a big week. That's the week before Shavasar Batamas, and already people are telling me in the travel business that it is going to be packed with tourists from around the world, and especially the U.S. that week. So you may want to be careful where you're going because, I mean, you know what it's like, Malcolm. When they say total lockdown in the area of where the president is, they mean it. They don't, care if, people, they don't care if people don't move for hours. Yeah, but but uh, first of all, I think the visit will be very short, probably not more than a day, right. place, and uh, it it um, it is a total lockdown. But they manage somehow eventually to get out. I wonder if they're going to take over. I mean, I assume they'll spend at least one night there. I wonder if they're going to take over, you know, a hotel or two because you know how hard that is when that happens. But but now these hotels, oh, I've seen it. I've been yeah, in hotels exactly. Where, but where now these hotels are going to be. But they kicked out a lot of people. They're going to be jam packed. They, uh, they're going to be jam packed that week. I don't know how they're going to absolutely unless people literally just go to a different city for the night. But it should be interesting. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listener sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSingle.com and the NachumSingle Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. All right, before we talk about this story about the tunnel network, which is 
so scary and fascinating, and I'm I'm wondering if that's going to be behind the agenda of uh, the president's meeting with Saudi Arabia. Let's just talk first about the um, two scientists who supposedly were killed with poison. In I, I assume they they were killed in Iran itself, right? They were killed in Iran. Uh, the suspicion is that Israel was is responsible for it. Has Israel reacted uh, at all to the accusation? No, Israel has has not. There's no claiming of credit for for the assassinations. Uh, there are some people who said that they were poisoned. There were people who said uh, other things. I mean, you know, there've been a series of um, accidents. accidents. <laughs> <laughs> but but when you see the defense ministry calls them martyrs. That's a designation that's usually given to people on important assignments. And um, the pictures they showed of them were in civilian clothes at the shrines and at other uh, places. So they're obviously trying to play down um, the role right. and the, the, um, the, you know, the, the retaliation uh, targeting Israeli civilians in Turkey uh, reflects the fact that Iran is trying to, to respond to it. Um, they made the accusation about the about the poisoning, but nobody has proved anything. And these were uh, some of the attacks were uh, several weeks um, ago under very uh, unsure circumstances. Yeah. Um, so, and then you have the, in May, you know, the the killing of um, the Iran Revolutionary Guard. With we didn't talk about Khodayi, right. uh, as well as the earlier ones, it's clear that these guys were developing weapons for Hezbollah and were um, uh, the, the, the fact that it took place in different locations and stuff and inside the country, obviously. Um, at one point, they were saying it was a car accident because right. for them, it's a humiliation each time these uh, incidents take place, and especially when it becomes public that they were you know, interrogated, even Israel interrogated some people they captured inside Tehran. So that's the research side. That's the scientific side. Israel or whoever is obviously taking care of business. I would assume, as you just described, that they're probably in the top ten, if not the top five, of scientists in Iran working on the nuclear program. I'd have to assume Israel's not. And the other guy who was killed was was the guy responsible for plotting a lot of the attacks on Israeli and Jewish targets abroad. Right. But this story, I, I don't know, frankly, when I read it this morning, it was frightening. Uh, I'll read the first paragraph in the New York Times. Israeli and American intelligence officials have been watching each day as Iran digs a vast tunnel network just south of the Natanz nuclear production site in what they believe is Tehran's biggest effort yet to, to, to construct new nuclear facilities so deep in the mountains that they can withstand bunker-busting bombs and cyber attacks. Um, it, it, you know, those those who care about freedom, those who care about freedom, whether they're Israelis or not, are obviously doing what I just described earlier, taking care of things on the research side, the scientific side. But look at what the world's allowing Iran to get away with. I mean, with all the things we've been talking about, enrichment, weapons capability, how many months it takes before they actually will have a nuclear bomb, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all those are really important. But this is a significant development and one where you can have video evidence of what's going on. And, frankly, one where I would would assume a military strike could take care of things, you know, relatively easily. No, a military strike could not take care of things relatively easily unless they do it right now, because um, the infrastructure that they put in, and by the way, <laughs> when they replaced Natanz, they built a thing the size of two or three football fields underground, crazy, hidden, 
And so you don't really know the full access. You don't have full access to it. They removed the cameras even from the existing facilities, So we, and we certainly have no cameras uh, on these. And by the way, they, they built it for drones. They built for other uh, uh, of their activities. Uh, they're building underground facilities because obviously Israel, the United States, and others have been following it and being able to um, impact those facilities till now. Then the underground um, aspirations and, and activities have been uh, long on the agenda, and they're implementing them very strongly. And, and you know that the technology that they used in, in um, on the Gaza border and in Lebanon, building whole underground tunnel networks, the virtual cities underground, and this is um, uh, going underneath mountains or inside drilling inside the mountains. Our satellites must pick up a lot of this activity, but they do their best to conceal it. And it's a, it's another stage in, in the, for those who you know try to paint Iran's nuclear program as benign and now saying you know they're only weeks away. We we know where they are. They they've enriched to sixty percent, way beyond the amounts that, that they were allowed to. They they have cut off IEA, International Atomic Energy Agency access. They are uh, moving on the more advanced centrifuges, and certainly on the on the there's supposed to be a launch of a satellite launch coming up in the next couple of days. They're moving on every front of, of a nuclear program and trying to block it from, uh, from visibility. They're continuing to send weapons into Iraq and to Syria. And, you know, the Israelis hit the airport in Syria and the Russians summoned the Israeli ambassador and, and complained about it yeah, because obviously yeah. Russia has planes near there to, uh, to take off from there also. Um, but the but it's an indication that the that Iran, despite the terrible economic conditions, the fact that more than half their population is starving and, and has no access to water and food, that the the demonstrations internally grow every week, and yet you hear nothing in the West about it. No New York Times reports. Nobody else talks about the fact that in two-thirds of the provinces of Iran, you have massive demonstrations against the government calling for Khamenei's death. I mean, very courageous things, but they get no resonance in the West at all. And it would be a unique opportunity to do something to make a change in Iran, not by having to send military troops, but support the people in the country who, who are putting their lives on the line and many paying with their lives for, for these at these demonstrations and stuff. So if Saudi Arabia says to Biden, to the president, Iran has to be stopped. What what's the reaction going to be? Is he going to pay lip service to it? Is he going to call? Is he going to call Jerusalem and and talk about how desperate this is to to you know to to stop the Iranians? I, I just if every single time every week we speak and every single time all they do is you know kick the can down the road. I don't know if a desperation from Saudi Arabia or anybody is going to have an effect on, on an American administration or those who we think are going to be responsible for stopping Iran. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I certainly want to see the hardest line position on Iran. Uh, you know, they still argue that if the deal was in place, we would be able to stop them. And it's only because the deal, when Trump uh, broke the deal, that uh, that a lot of these things happened. And it's not true. It was happening all along. Uh. And the, the none of the, you know, the development of the centrifuge and all that was ha- taking place while they were parties to the to the deal. 
and they are obviously now not coming rushing to come back. And we see the Russians, by the way, playing a critical role in trying to block it. And to and I'm telling you from the inside that the Russians are are um, uh, dissuading them from engaging in in negotiations in Vienna and moving ahead because they stand to benefit if if there's no deal. The price of oil stays 125 in Russia continues to collect, and if there's a deal, they will export through and break the sanctions through Iran, which they're doing now anyway. So, uh, you know, we have to go back to the facts and see that the only thing that works with Iran is a strict policy where they, there's, no, there's no wiggle room. They can't turn to the Europeans and others because they'll be weak on this. It has to be solid policy that continues to add sanctions. Uh, I credit the administration that didn't back down on, on taking the uh, IRGC off the uh, foreign terrorist organizations, which was you know, the, a fundamental demand by the Iranians. Uh, and uh, even uh, Mali, who was a big proponent of the deal and was leading the American negotiations, is acknowledging testimony to Congress that uh, the deal is uh, either lost or being lost in the process uh, of, the, of the last few weeks. I wonder if it's to the detriment of the free world that Israel is going to be going through this transition, whatever that transition is. You know, whether it's the, a detriment to Israel. Israel needs stability. It needs governments that can last. The average government lasts two and a half years. It's not enough. It it, it needs to have it, and then it undermines confidence in it. And everybody who reached out to Bennett or Bennett reached out to or Lapid doesn't know whether they're the people they can deal with, and. Um, it's um, it's not healthy for Israel. It's not healthy for anyone. Israel also has faces is going to is impacted by the economic conditions worldwide. Even though they seem to to be weathering the storm uh, better than others, but it's it needs a government that can plan. You can't you can't keep changing direction in in this kind of those and be frozen in other instances. Not to be able to bring important legislative initiatives because you, you you can't risk a no confidence vote or you won't be able to pass and and then you have a, a real problem and on top of that i wonder if israeli leaders just you know roll their eyes when they see a meeting between the u.s and saudi arabia on iran again thinking that you know nothing practical nothing concrete is going to come out of it in terms of action against iran i'd have to assume that that's you know that a lot of governments in that area are, are feeling that way. That it, it just seems that you know the the U.S. they're just spinning their wheels. You know, every time it's a, a new excuse or a, a new reason why they can't just get tougher on Iran. So that is the feeling of, of many in the Arab world and elsewhere with whom I've spoken. I mean, there is skepticism. I do think, though, that people recognize that the visit to Saudi Arabia and the fact that the the breach between the two countries is being mended somewhat is very important. It, it does send a strong message to Iran because they exploit those differences. Uh, so does Russia, so does China, so do others, yeah. that if, if in fact we can heal some of the, of the deep wounds that exist, uh, I don't know how they're going to handle the Khashoggi thing. I don't know how they handle some of the other issues, but it, it, that is very important in sending a message to to Iran, and it bolsters the other countries in standing against them. Maduro leads Venezuela. What do you make of the Maduro visit to Iran? Well, he signed a twenty-year agreement, and it's it's and not new because uh, you know Venezuela is increasingly wholly owned subsidiary. Uh, what was interesting during that time is that while he was there, a Venezuelan plane 
uh, was seized by the government of Argentina, which is not considered the most friendly government, and they, they're they holding uh, the plane till now. It was uh, Amazur Airline, which is a Venezuelan government-owned airline, and the plane was bought from Mahan Air, which is a sanctioned Iranian uh, company, a- a airline, uh, under U.S. sanctions for a long time because they played a role in sending weapons to, to Syria, to other places. Anyway, the the um, I mean, it's very significant that they're holding the Iranians who were on board. There were 17 crew members on the plane. It stopped in Mexico, had automotive parts, which don't seem to be significant, but the the um, uh, this seems to be the only plane that a mature airline has and the only flight that it engages in. <laughs> and as you know, that there is a regular flight that goes to Damascus, uh, Tehran, uh, Venezuela, mm-hmm. and it's been resumed again over the last uh, months, and we know, and nobody checks it. It never goes through customs that we believe weapons and other things are being sent through that. Um, uh, I'm glad to see that the United States, that the original proposal, had been muted that uh, that we would buy uh, oil from Venezuela has uh, has died. I mean, we are sanctioning Venezuela for getting oil from Iran, and then then we would talk about spending billions of dollars to buy it. I hope was was really never seriously considered, although obviously it wasn't the press and, and mentioned. So the Maduro visit doesn't really reflect a change, but it does reflect the reality in South America where the situation continent-wide is becoming increasingly unbalanced for us, anti-American, anti-Israel, that pro-sympathetic governments, uh, pro-Western governments are being replaced by very hostile governments like in Chile, like in Costa Rica, uh, um, uh, Uribe in, in Colombia, elsewhere. And, um, uh, you know, it's it's not fighting Iran from 8,000 miles. It's fighting it from an hour off Florida's coast. Yeah, and the entire continent. It's a lot of countries. They have a lot of allies in a very important part of the world, as you just described. And we have very few allies remaining today in South America, that uh, Bolsonaro, who uh, again voted with, with Israel, uh, you know, condemned the the Commission of Inquiry in the UN. Uh, Brazil uh, was one of the 22 countries, uh, including the United States, a U.S.-led initiative, which we are grateful uh, to condemn the Commission of Inquiry, which is a one-sided, uh, horrendous, and I know people turn off when you mention the UN, but here is a body created with unlimited funding, unlimited time, uh, right to investigate everything about Israel's history, Israel's right to exist. You will see the apartheid chain charges. You will see them going to the International Criminal Court because they've said that's what they're going to do. And the leader in Ivan Palais was an avowedly anti-Israel person. So members of the commission, which is violation of UN rules uh, about who can run commissions of these kinds that they can't come in with biases, uh, et cetera. And the, the report itself is, I mean, I know uh, that people dismiss anything that comes that relates to the UN, but it's different. This has never been done against the country. They, the most cited source in the report they issued last week was the Goldstone report of oh. 2009. Oh, wow. and, and Goldstone himself disavowed it <laughs> in writing. And That's said, right. That's right. I he said, that. if I had known then what I know now, the report would have been a different document. Yet, yet they go back to that and use that as the basis. Um, and and the they also want to discredit the designation of terror-linked uh, Palestinian NGOs. I mean, their whole array. You can read online some of the issues that that have been encountered about 
this commission of inquiry, which can be very dangerous. I'm telling you, don't people should not dismiss it, think it's unimportant. It become a vehicle with UN under UN auspices for even more intense than the existing commissions, Palestinian commissions, which get millions of dollars from the UN just to, to do nothing but as a propaganda machine against Israel. Yeah, I hear that. Just more and more of a propaganda machine against Israel. By the way, how many times did we talk about the Goldstone Report? <laughs> you, you just took me back. <laughs> you, time, I, right? I, I mean, I can only imagine how many of these conversations included the word, word, word Goldstone for God knows how many months and years. Um, finally, Israel convicted Mohammed al-Halabi, uh, described as a Palestinian aid worker, on charges of uh, funding Hamas. How rock-solid was the evidence in this case? It was very rock solid. He worked for World Vision. He's, uh, he, he transferred money, and that is a violation. And the, Israel was very sensitive, obviously recognizing that the, you know, they, they will dump, dump on Israel from the human rights community because of, of World Vision. Rather than uh, examining the, the real facts in this case, Israel did it very deliberately. And I think that the, the results are, um, are quite clear. Uh, you know, and you see that the Europeans and others who jump on it, they haven't jumped on the PA for their anti-Semitic textbooks. In fact, we see that some of the the, uh, the um, EU Commission decided to unfreeze aid funds for the Palestinians. Uh, only Hungary voted against it, and they withheld like 250 million euros for the past six months because of the um, Palestinian authorities the failure to remove the the hostile content in in the textbooks that you see that they reward them uh, no matter what and they're fighting their own forces um there was a big demonstrations in um, in uh, Naja University in the West Bank against the government and uh, a lot of internal unrest but it hardly gets any recognition about the, the realities and the fact that you have a government that, that has no legitimacy, but everybody just dismisses and said it's not important. What was important is the visit of the head of the EU coming to to Egypt and Israel, signing a very important deal. This natural gas deal is very critical, and it's now the first time that you have this kind of Europe-Israel energy cooperation and the uh, exploration that would that will see Israel providing uh, uh, energy to to Europe, helping to replace the the um, uh, disappearing Russian supplies, and uh, and the statements that uh, Van der Leyen made were really very um, very positive and much more than what we have heard in in the past. And maybe they'll resurrect the um, the pipeline between Israel and Cyprus and Greece. Maybe other things that um, you know will strengthen the ties within the region itself happy father's day malcolm to you too and to all the fathers out there and would-be fathers and, and to all the mothers too yeah to, make fathers fathers to, to, and, and by the way as we said yesterday with surly besser all the grandparents and great-grandparents because this generation uh, needs, needs the grandparents and great-grandparents to, uh, to exactly we put we should it never that. forget people should take and this time now when young people are so ignorant of the history, even the Shoah, and, and we assume that young people know when we know that they don't. Maybe that uh, will be a good thing on Father's Day for fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, sit down with your grandchildren and just tell them the truth, tell them the reality, tell, warn them, give them the, the signal. 100%. It's Binush Nostar Vidar that we got to pass it on. 
It's an obligation. It's not. It's not a uh, an option. It's really an obligation. Amen. Phenomenal. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful job. Great job. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays for the weekly update right here at JMN.